street epistemology is a wonderful approach that anyone can learn. Please follow me on Twitter at MagnaBosco or on Facebook and YouTube at MagnaBosco210. You can learn more about street epistemology at streetepistemology.com. Thank you everybody uh, for having me come to your meeting and tell you a little bit about street epistemology. Uh, Yanosh has done a lot of work behind the scenes to make this meeting happen. I think I first met Yanosh when he offered to translate some of my videos into German and add German captions to the videos. And I think it's wonderful when people volunteer to do that. I have three short topics that I want to go over today and I'm going to time myself. I actually brought my the very same timer that I use when I talk to people. I'm going to time myself to keep myself at about five minutes for each of three topics. The first topic I want to cover is going over the difference between street epistemology and the aggressive firebrand approach that you might normally see happening between people that believe in God and people that don't believe in any gods. And then I want to shift gears a little bit. It's my understanding that everybody there, or most of the people watching in your group, has watched the video of Carrie, the discussion that I had with a woman named Carrie. And I want to do a breakdown video on that. I want to spend five minutes pointing out some of the things that are, that are memorable to me when I think about that conversation that I had. And then I want to close with talking about the future of street epistemology as I see it. Uh, these are things that I think will probably end up happening and uh, I'm hoping that there will be people watching this who will be interested in participating in some of those things. And then the, the fourth phase of this, I suppose, will be taking your questions. I want, to, I want to field any questions that you have about the method of street epistemology or some of the things that, uh, how do I prepare for that, or those types of things. What are some of the challenges? I'd be more than happy to try to answer your questions that you have. Both Yanash and I are recording this. Uh, I think we're also live streaming. So there are people um, that are watching this now. I don't know how the camera situation is over there, but if, you, if you're not comfortable with your face or your full name being broadcast, then uh, perhaps you can pass along your questions to Yanash and he can read those. Again, I just want to thank you again for having me here. I'm very excited to be talking about street epistemology. I wanted to talk a little bit about the differences between street epistemology and what people might call the firebrand approach. Now, I, th I think it's important for us to first explain what firebrand means. There are some believers that might watch that conversation that I had with Carrie and think that I was using an aggressive firebrand approach with her simply because I was asking her why she believed what she believed. So there's a perception even from believers that just questioning a person why they hold a belief is, is firebrand, is, is aggressive, it's assertive, it's crossing the line. So... Um, I don't really quite see it that way. When I think of the word firebrand, in my mind, I have an image of an atheist arguing and yelling with a God believer, telling them that they're stupid, telling them that they don't have any facts to back up their claim, laughing at them, ridiculing them. I've come to learn that that approach usually doesn't help the person that I'm speaking with. Now, there are some advantages to the firebrand aggressive approach that you might see a David Silverman, an Aaron Ra, a Richard Dawkins arguing with somebody. 
because of the venue that they're in, the location, the surroundings. So if I'm in a debate with somebody, let's say there are 10 of my friends are watching this discussion, me being aggressive and, 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 and being rude and ridiculing that person will more than likely not help the person that I'm speaking with change their mind. But the 10 people that are watching, they may be just distanced enough from the conversation to be observing it and it could very well affect them. So I think that there is a place for the firebrand approach at the expense of the individual that you're speaking with. If you are having a conversation with a friend or your coworker or your aunt or your mom, I really wouldn't recommend the firebrand approach. I think the street epistemology approach of asking questions, listening, repeating back, and trying to better understand the how. How did you conclude that this belief is true? And ending on good terms and hopefully planting a seed of doubt. That I think is the better approach when having conversations with believers. That being said, I do think that there's a place for both. There are times where you might want to lead with a more gentle Socratic street epistemology approach. So let's think about that conversation with Carrie. We had a very nice back and forth. It was a great talk. She ended up lowering her confidence slightly on her belief. She was a total stranger to me, but let's say that we became fast friends and 10 conversations later, she's ready for facts. She's ready to be challenged a little bit more than the Socratic approach. Then I think it's appropriate to shift gears and you could be a little bit more firebrand about it. So just to summarize, I think the venue that you're in is very important when determining which of those tools you'll pull out of your arsenal to have the conversation. And what are your goals? If your goal is to humiliate the person and not help them, then firebrand is the way to go. Or if you recognize that I'm not going to change his mind, but I might change the 10 people that are around me, then maybe the firebrand approach is the way to go. More often than not, I think atheists, skeptics, free thinkers, we're usually having conversations with people that we care about. And I think street epistemology is perhaps the best way to engage with them and help them think about how they form their belief. All right, let's talk a little bit about the, the conversation that I had with Carrie. It's one of my favorites. I enjoyed talking with her, complete stranger. I, I'm standing on a hiking trail. She agrees to stop and talk with me. One of the very first things you may have noticed that we built a little rapport. I explained what I was doing. I told her that I came to the trail several times with my kids and they slowed me down. And so we didn't just get right to what do you believe and why? There was a little bit of an introduction and getting to know each other there. This talk with Carrie, I, I love it. I, ended, I've, I think I've watched it or listened to it more than 20 times because her willingness to honestly think about what she believes was great. And that's such a big part of it. Uh, that conversation was good because she seemed to be inquisitive by nature. If you recall, she was saying something like, I think she's in the healthcare industry. She worked with, with young babies. Either she's a doctor or a physician's assistant or a nurse, I'm not sure but she said that she met a couple that were spiritual Satanists. And what did she say that she did? She said that she went out and researched it. She wanted to learn more about that. She didn't just dismiss it. So that told me from the very start that she was an open-minded person and intelligent. She's an intelligent person. I think it's amazing what people will disclose. I think that talk resonated with a lot of people because she related a very a, a personal story. Like I think she said she was abused by her husband. Uh, I, I find it amazing that five minutes into a discussion with a stranger that she would reveal something so personal 
and, and, and share that with me. But not only with me, but with the people that were watching the video. Faith came up in that discussion. Faith is oftentimes the method that people will say that they're using to be certain that their belief is true. And that's what Carrie mentioned. She said, I, I believe it because of faith. I know that it was my God that got me through that difficult marriage because I'm using faith to know that that's the case. Now, I didn't recognize it at the time when I did that interview, but it seemed like Carrie was equating the feelings that she gets. She felt that it was true and she equated feeling with knowing. And I wish I spent a little bit more time as to how can you actually know something to be true if you're just basing it off of feelings. We danced around that a little bit. I guess the high point of that discussion was when Carrie said that, and I think it was near the end where I said, I, I want to kind of summarize what I think you just said and correct me if this isn't what you're saying, but it sounds like what you're saying is, yeah, I know I'm not hundred percent confident that the God exists, but it's more comfortable for me to say that I'm hundred percent. And that was the breakthrough. Why? Why? Why do, you, why do you need to have this comfort? And she mentioned that it was a scary thought. It was a scary thought to think that there's nothing after I die, that I'll never see my kids again. Which I think, I suspect, that that's the main reason why people have these beliefs in the first place. These religious beliefs, I think, they're largely based on faith and to distract people from the possibility that this might be the one and only life that we have. And to see that play out in a 15 minute conversation or however long it was, was incredible. It ended on a very funny note too. She was explaining that she holds lots of other beliefs that are based on things that really don't have a lot of evidence to support it. There was a bird that landed and she said, it's my impression that when you see a cardinal, it means that somebody from a past life is coming to say hello. And then we kind of ended on a good note. I also think it's a good sign when somebody says that they enjoyed it, where I said, what did you think about the talk? And she said, it was great. I didn't feel like you were judging me. I didn't feel like there was any condemnation. And uh, she wanted to hear a little bit about my belief. So all in all, I thought that was a great talk. It's one of my favorites. I have it pinned uh, on my channel. I might switch it out with another one because <laughs> it's been up there for about six months. It's one of my favorites. But um, it was a very, very fun talk. Let's uh, cover my last topic and then we'll get to the Q&A. I want to talk a little bit about the future of street epistemology. Street epistemology started, and you probably covered this when Yanash gave his presentation, but it started back in 2013 with a book by Dr. Peter Boghossian. And it's, it's come a long way since then. There is a vibrant group uh, that meets in the, there's a private Facebook group where you can meet with other people that are learning this approach. There is a street epistemology guide that's based on people that have had conversations with strangers and we put all of our findings into this 30-page guide that's fantastic. Peter Boghossian has released an app called Atheos, which is fantastic for practicing the method without having to engage with any strangers. But where do we go from here? What's coming down the road? What are the, some of the challenges that we face? Well, I think the first thing that we need to tackle is encourage people who are involved in research to study this method from a variety of angles. There are people who are now watching videos, they're, they're seeing the app, they're seeing all these discussions about street epistemology, and they're interested in studying it. Research students. Uh, there is a PhD linguistics student who wants to analyze the dialogues and see what makes these conversations unique. There are a couple other people that are involved in various research areas who are looking for ways to study the effectiveness of SE. Does it work? What does a success look like? Are we causing harm? Is this causing a person to double down on their belief like the backfire effect? We want to start measuring this. We're, most of us are skeptics. 
We want quantitative data to demonstrate if this is working. And right now, all we have is qualitative data. All we have is people relating stories about what we think is happening. And we need to move into the research phase. With that being said, if there's anybody watching or listening to this discussion and you're, you're interested in studying this or you know somebody that is like, this would be the perfect topic to study for them, have them get in touch with me because we want people to start studying this. Aftercare is a big part of this as well. So we're having conversations with people and oftentimes they are less confident that their belief is true. Now, if they have already been doubting about their belief, meeting with a person like myself could actually move them to a place where they abandon their belief altogether. I'm not exactly sure how it is in Germany, but uh, in the United States, it's a very religious society. It's not quite common to encounter an atheist. Uh, while I do think that they're, they're there, it's not common to be public about it. So. I think it's, uh, it's very important that we have another place to direct the people that we speak with to, resources, communities, somebody to talk to if, they are, if they're struggling with their belief, if they're having doubt, if they're looking for a safe place to land when they abandon their belief. Uh, there is Recovering From Religion, which is a completely separate organization that I highly recommend if anyone out there is doubting or needs somebody to talk to or you're surrounded by people that do believe but you don't. That's a great group. I've also recently started a, a secret, that's the term that Facebook uses, a secret Facebook group called Emerging Faith. So if you are a non-believer and you're married to a believer, or you have friends or coworkers that are believers, you have no one else to talk to, this is an online community that is, is there to, to be there for you, to listen to you. When we have these conversations, we probably have an obligation to see people through all the way not just leave them in a state of aporia, in a state of wonder, or even a state of doubt, or maybe even a, an emotional state of crisis, uh, that, we, that we have an obligation, I think, to, to be there for them if they need help. We're working on a teaching plan, a lesson plan for teaching this method, and we want to try to frame it in a way where it's not just about disabusing people of their God belief. These are tools that will help others have conversations with people about pretty much any truth claim. I think that this liquid will help me with my headaches, or I always pick the slowest line. These types of claims we hear all the time, but they largely go unchallenged. And I think street epistemology, when we realize that it's not just for talking to people about their God belief, it could be used for any truth claim. Uh, so we're developing a lesson plan to provide materials to anyone that wants to teach this into a classroom setting, whether this is grade school, high school, college, your philosophy club, etc. And I'm very excited about that. We should be unveiling that pretty soon. And I think we can probably shift to the Q&A because that covers the three points that I wanted to talk about. Uh, okay, so the first question is, are there ways to quantify the success of street epistemology, particularly when you compare it to the other methods that are out there, like the firebrand approach? That is a question that I wish I knew the answer to. I, I have a couple of ideas on how we could test that, but I think we need a very large sample size. And I think even the topic that we selected could pose some challenges. So for example, there might be a university that would love to answer this question for us, but if we picked the God belief as the topic to engage people with, whether it's a person or it's a form, or it's, you're using a computer, or a chatbot on a computer, we would probably encounter some resistance in the United States if we picked a sensitive topic like that. If we pick something like karma, 
or ghosts, we might be able to make some progress and, and, and be able to measure that. Fundamentally, I think what it comes down to is funding. Even if we were to find some researchers who wanted to study street epistemology and study the effectiveness of it compared to other approaches, I would imagine at some point funding is going to be an issue. How do we pay the people that will be conducting the interviews? How do we pay the people that will be doing the research? How do we pay the people that will be that will be providing the materials and, and, and the software or whatever? So I think that's a that's a really big challenge, and I don't know what the solution to it is. Um, there are a couple of groups. There's one group doing something called deep canvassing, and I believe they're on the west coast and the east coast of the United States. I could be mistaken, but I believe they're doing something similar to street epistemology, where they literally go door to door to talk to people about LGBTQ issues. So how do you feel about a gender identity ban? for the bathrooms, that type of thing. They have a lot of funding. They have researchers who are studying this data. Maybe there's a partnership down the road, I don't know. I, I think that they're aware of SE. We're certainly aware of them, but I, I don't know what the answer to that is. I wish I did, because I want to study this too. And that's why I think that this is an important goal that we need to have going forward. Okay, so the next question is, are we planning to offer courses to teach street epistemology, and what are the best ways of teaching the method? We are developing a lesson plan to teach the method. We're creating materials so that the lessons can be taught. I don't know what the best way is to do that. Uh, we're going to do a little testing where we're going to be looking for clubs just like yours, Yanash, where you might have 10 or 15 or 20 people in your group that are moderately interested in this that would be willing to test our materials. So we'll be looking, we'll be making a post in the private group to find people who are interested in testing these materials. I think the Secular Student Alliance would be interested in, in doing this testing as well. Um, do, is, is classroom training the best way to teach this? I'm not sure. Maybe watching a video or two and then practicing it on your own or using the app, maybe that's the best way. I feel a little bad that I don't have a straight hard answer for you to tell you what is the best way, I don't know. But we're, we are trying to approach this from a variety of different ways. We have Peter Bogosian's book. We have Peter Bogosian's app called Atheos. We have videos on YouTube. There are tutorials on YouTube. There are presentations that I've given and other people are starting to give on this method. We're doing interviews. We're developing lesson plans. There's lively discussions going on. So it seems like we're just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks and what's best. But at this moment, I'm, really, I'm not sure what the best way is to teach this. And, and what might be the best way may not be the most efficient way. We may find that a classroom setting is the best way to do it, but it's very difficult to actually bring people to a physical location for three hours to teach them something. We're working on it, I suppose, is, is my answer, but um, that's a great question, a very good question. What was my greatest or most memorable SE moment? Hmm. That's a good question. I've, I've had a lot of conversations with people. Probably the conversation with a young woman named Michaela who we, we ended up having two talks and that in itself is a little unusual because oftentimes I meet somebody we chat for five minutes or ten minutes and then I never see them again in her situation I ran into her two weeks later our very first conversation she mentioned that she was a hundred one hundred percent sure that, that a God existed by the end of a short talk I she self-reported that she was about seventy five percent 
Two weeks passed. I spotted her across the campus. I asked her to come over, and she reported that she was in church thinking about our previous conversation. And she was asking herself, what, why do I believe this? What do I want to believe? And, and how do I know that these things are true? It was just a wonderful moment to hear her thinking, kind of expressing what she was thinking. We talked a little bit more and she said the mo a more honest place for her to be on that belief was 50%. I think what made that talk even more memorable was when I asked if the conversation would affect her future children if she got married. And she said that it would, that she wanted to teach her kids things that were actually true. And that was cool. That was that was probably the most memorable moment. I, I've had many, many like that. Not all of them are recorded. Not all of them are uploaded to YouTube. That one just kind of worked out right. And, and I was able to share that example with other people. That, that was probably the most memorable one. Question four out of 12. <laughs> wow, there are a lot of questions. What is your response to people who accuse you of being like a street preacher? It's a common charge. People will see that I'm on the street. They'll see that I'm engaging with people about deeply held sensitive topics. Street epistemology has the word street in its name, <laughs> like street preacher. But I think the key difference here is that I'm rarely telling a person what I think the truth is. And you need to change your whole worldview because you're way off. And I've got the truth and let me set you straight. That is the main difference here. When I'm having a conversation with somebody, it's almost always question after question after question. I want the person that I'm speaking with to provide the answers to what they believe. I'm not giving them the answers. So there's a big difference there. You don't have to be on the street using street epistemology. Very, very few people do what I do and, and engage with people on the street with a camera. Almost always these conversations are happening over social media, when you're in the cafe having some coffee. These are when these discussions are happening. Even when I first set out to do this, I recognized that people would say, oh, you're just as bad as the street preachers. But how the hell am I supposed to get practice? How am I supposed to show people this method if I didn't engage with people? So it's, it's a necessary evil. I think it's, it's something that I just, I just have to do. And I think if anyone watched the videos closely, they would notice that there's a, a drastic difference between what a street preacher might be yelling at people and what a street epistemologist might be asking people. Is it better to start a conversation by saying, I want to interview you, or just try to let it happen naturally? Ideally, the best conversations are the ones that just naturally happen. So you're standing at a stoplight, and then somebody comes up to you, and they want to hand you a Bible verse for you to read. That's a perfect opportunity to start engaging with them. You could also just, if you spot the Jehovah's Witnesses on their little stand across the street, and you've got some time, you can walk up there and, and just start talking with them too. I think either one is, is a good approach to practice it and to learn it. Ideally, I think it's better if they're organic rather than you're just initiating the talks. The more conversations that you can get under your belt, the more conversations that you can practice, I think the, the more proficient you will become at the method. So the question is, do I have experience using street epistemology for non-religious beliefs like conspiracy theories, uh, anti-vaxxers, that type of, type of thing. And yes, yes, uh, nowadays when I talk to people, I ask them to pick a topic. I love it when they pick the God belief because even if they pick that they think the earth is flat, that belief almost always resting on something else than that. So we can talk about the flat earth and, and we, we can use street epistemology for those different types of beliefs. But I want to go right to the foundation. 
I'll talk about any topic, but I, I almost hate wasting my time talking about something that more than likely is not the real reason why they think it. I can, I can talk to a person who thinks the earth is flat, but they think the earth is flat because they read it in the Bible, and they think the Bible is the inspired word of God. So why spend all that time talking about flat earth when, when there's a more fundamental issue at play? So what's more important, changing the person that I'm speaking to's mind or coming up with an example that I can show on my YouTube channel? There are times where somebody wants to speak with me and I have all my camera gear on and I'm ready to go. I've got time, the weather's great, my batteries are charged, but they don't want to be recorded. So I will reluctantly turn off my camera or point it down just to get audio if they're okay with that and I'll have the conversation. To answer the question, I would much rather, I would much rather record the conversation so that thousands of people can watch it, perhaps at the expense of the person that I'm speaking with. I don't think I've ever turned down somebody to have a conversation because they didn't want to be recorded. That's my preference. I can have a conversation with somebody and spend 15 minutes talking about why they think a God is haunting their kitchen. Sure, it may have helped that person, and it certainly has helped me because I've gotten more proficient at the method. But if I can't share it with other people, then it's almost not worth it to me. But I think my situation is different because the majority of the people that are having these conversations are not interested in capturing them to show other people. I guess in the real world, you're having these conversations to help the person that you're speaking with. But I think my situation is a little bit different because there are so many eyeballs on this method and the channel and what I'm uploading. So it's a little bit different, I think. So the question is, do you, Anthony, filter the videos? Are you selective when you decide what you're going to upload to your YouTube channel? And if so, what criteria are you using? And the, uh, the answer to that is yes. I have hundreds of conversations sitting on my hard drives over here that will never see YouTube. Now, it might just be because the person just couldn't get out of preach mode and, and never wanted to be as open and honest as Carrie. It could be because... I just asked a really stupid question and it completely derailed the whole conversation. There are times where I will screw up, but I'll still upload the video because I want people to, to notice it and to say, well, Anthony, why did you ask that? And then there could be a lively discussion about how I messed up. Sometimes the discussions go on for 30 minutes and we never make any progress or I just still don't really understand what it is they believe. Sometimes a mom will stop and she has a little baby on her and then the baby turns and now I've got a kid's face on the camera and I don't have the time to blur, blur it, and I don't want to have the baby's face on it. It could be something like that. Maybe there was a truck that roared by in the background or a jackhammer started going, kids screaming. There's a lot of factors that cause me to just throw up my arms and say, well, that one was just shot. I'll still continue the discussion to maybe, maybe it turns around and it's, it's worth it. It's worth the cost. But um, it's usually something related to the production value as opposed to something that I fell hard on my face and completely screwed it up. Sometimes it's that that's the case, but more often than not, it's something that, that impedes the production value of it. It's too long, it's too boring, the person wasn't being honest, um, that type of thing. If you want to get a sense of what a typical day of me going out and having conversations with people, it would be to watch my live streams. If you go to my Twitter account, which is at Magnabosco, I've linked my Periscope account to that. And just like Janosch has done, you can watch me live interface with people. You can probably get a sense of the criteria that I'm using when I decide if I'm going to upload it or not. And sometimes if I am live streaming at the same time, I will talk to the people that are watching me live and say, let me know, do you think that that was good for YouTube or not? Just type in a YT or NYT 
yes, YouTube or no YouTube. Sometimes what I think was a really bad conversation, the people watching it thought it was fantastic because it was about a topic that was never covered or something like that. There's a new venue for me to release my content. There is a street epistemology podcast. So there was a talk that I had with a guy about a ghost. He thought there was a ghost in his kitchen. It would have been kind of a pain to edit it for YouTube because he wasn't quite centered and everything, but the audio was good. So I just ended up releasing the audio. Sometimes something might not be good for YouTube, but I might still release it as an audio file. Okay, so what is your goal, Anthony? Is your goal to create atheists like the book from Dr. Peter Bogosian, A Manual for Creating Atheists? In a way, I suppose, yes. If a person is believing in a God and they realize during a conversation with me that they don't have a good reason to hold the belief, then yeah, I want them to abandon that belief. I want them to change their mind. Sometimes the conversation results in them lowering their confidence in the belief a little bit, which I think is beneficial. Being less confident that a belief is true, particularly a belief that is, that is supernatural, is probably a good thing. It might also help a person realize that they need to go find a better reason for the belief. At its baser level though, this is about finding truth. This is about wanting to live in a world where the majority of the people believe things that are true. And I think Socratic questioning is one of the best ways to achieve that state so that people are evaluating their beliefs and deciding to believe in them or not. If people are abandoning beliefs because they don't have a good reason for it, then I think that that's a beneficial thing. That's a beneficial thing for the person that I'm speaking with, but for society in general. And I mentioned, I think, earlier that this method is not just for talking to people about God beliefs. You can have these conversations about anything. So, so ultimately, it's, it's, it's a quest to find truth, to teach people a way of evaluating their belief claims and their claims about reality and hopefully moving society towards a place where we're questioning these things and we're not getting upset about it. Have I ever been able to deconvert anyone in one or two interviews? I've had several conversations with people where they have completely, completely abandoned their God belief or other beliefs. Uh, I had a conversation with a woman who believed in karma and the two encounters occurred on screen. Like uh, we were recording them, I think I was even live streaming it. Her name is Kiana and she had a high degree of confidence in, in karma. We talked once, she lowered her confidence. We met 10 minutes later and she lowered her confidence even more. I think it was pretty clear by the end of the talk that had the discussion not moved so fast for her that she probably would have just abandoned the belief outright. SE, street epistemology, I think works best when people have time to process it because these beliefs aren't being formed in a day. These beliefs are being formed over time and I think abandoning a belief takes time too. That might be the Achilles heel of street epistemology that if a person is not encountering other people to challenge their beliefs, that the incentive to keep holding on to an unfounded belief might be too hard to resist, which is why we need more and more people to learn this. We need more and more people to engage with others so that process can keep going. Um, which is why there are people who are trying to spread this method and teach other people how to use it. Yes, I've had lots of conversations with people who have completely abandoned their belief in God and karma and ghosts and all sorts of other things. There was a, a guy who reached out to me two years after I met with him on a college campus to say, hey, Anthony, I looked you up and found you on Twitter. I wanted to let you know that I'm no longer a Christian. Thanks, something like that. So can I take the credit for all of that? No, because it seemed like the initial discussion 
prompted him to research his beliefs further. And he did a lot of that on his own. But I think SE is great for nudging the boulder just a bit, just to kind of get it rolling just a little bit. But there needs to be other people there uh, to keep that momentum going. And the person themselves needs to be willing to change their mind. I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> we, had, we had 12 questions, now we have 13. So the question is, do I think it's unusual for people to open up as much as they do in my videos? Yeah, I do think it's unusual. I don't know why most people do open up. Maybe there's something about my approach that they're, they're more comfortable. Maybe they feel safe. Like maybe I, I don't appear to be a threat to them where they feel like they can, they can open up. But I'm often baffled by that. Like Carrie, for example, we talked about that earlier. She very quickly was relating a, a personal story where she was being abused by her husband to a complete stranger with a camera. I, I don't know, I have some suspicions. My main suspicion is that these are beliefs that people want to talk about. That they're not generally allowed to bring them up, but they're dying to talk about them. And they finally have an opportunity to talk with somebody, maybe, maybe being a stranger is actually beneficial because they, I don't know her, you know, she doesn't know me. Maybe I'm safer in that regard. But I think people are craving these conversations. They want to talk about them. And, and given the chance, they just open up. It just all comes out. So I'm, I'm baffled that that's the case. I would think that people would be much more reserved. But there's something about these questions because, again, it all goes back to you know, the comparison between an evangelizer and somebody using street epistemology. I want to bring those answers out of the person. I'm not telling them what to think. I want to hear what they think. It's not often where people want to actually hear what you have to say, sincerely want to hear it. And that's such a big part of SE. So I think people are just picking up on that and seeing it as an opportunity to just get it off their chest and, and tell you what they really think. Okay, so the question is, have you, Anthony, ever had somebody ask you questions about your belief? a belief that you hold and now you're less sure, you realize that you're less confident that it's true. That, that's happened. I've had some good conversations with other people who are involved in street epistemology that have engaged me on what I think truth is. Or I had a Facebook Messenger discussion with somebody, I wish I could remember his name, the uh, downloading music without compensating the artist, you know, just getting free, free content. And it was my position that that was stealing, that we should be paying people for the content, that I'm more than willing to pay $1.29 for a song, even though I can just download it for free from this other website. And by the end of the discussion, I was less confident. I was a little bit more convinced that it could actually be in the artist's best interest to download the content for free because more people could be exposed to their work and then purchase things from them later on down the road. So that's a probably simple, a simple example where I found myself changing my mind. And when I was going through that process, I was experiencing cognitive dissonance. It was an uncomfortable thing for me to think about because I've always held the belief that I should be paying for my music. But because I went through that exercise, when I see that happening to other people on different beliefs, I feel like I can understand them better. I think it's advantageous for people to be challenging the folks that are actually using street epistemology. I've also had people use street epistemology on street epistemology. How do you know that it's effective? What would change your mind? Would you stop using SE if you learned that it was actually harmful? These types of questions. I'm open to the possibility that I'm mistaken on my map of reality. I want an accurate map of reality. So uh, I try to welcome those conversations. Street Epistemology is a technique by Dr. Peter Bogosian in his book, A Manual for Creating Atheists, and his Android and iOS app, Atheos. 